he had no idea who the older gentleman was. In 1966, a man named Doug Nichols was working for a Christian organization called Operation Mobilization. And OM was having their big annual conference that year in London, England. And Doug was a young man at that time, and he volunteered to be on the cleanup team. So, 12.30, early one morning, he's out front sweeping off the steps. When this man walks up to him, and he asks this question, is this where the conference is being held? And Doug said, well, yes, it is. And he said, I'll show you where you can stay. He just figured he was one of the conference attenders. So being late, he took him into a, a, a big room where there were 50 other volunteers sleeping that night. He said, I don't have anything uh, for you, but he kind of scrounged around and found a, a pallet and a blanket, and he rolled up a towel for the man's pillow. Then he said, well, have you had anything to eat? And the man said, well, I've been traveling all day. I haven't had anything to eat. And so he said, let's go down to the kitchen. They went to the kitchen, and they got in the kitchen and found some cornflakes and milk, a little bit of bread, a little bit of jam. After that, they went back to this room full of 50 other young people, and this older gentleman laid down on his little pallet and went to sleep for the night. The next morning, the leadership of Operation Mobilization called Doug into their office. And they said, do you know who that man was? That was Francis Schaeffer. Now, that name may not mean much to you, but Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian leader who was the featured speaker at that conference. And here's this great Christian man, this renowned author and speaker, sleeping on the floor with a bunch of college kids, resting his head upon a rolled-up towel. That is humility on display. And I want to talk to you about living that kind of life. A life where it's not all about you. I want to talk to you about avoiding the sin of self-importance. And we see this clearly illustrated in our text today. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to continue our study through this Old Testament book. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to read verse 6 together. If you're physically able, would you stand with me this morning, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'm grateful for my Bible, how about you? There in 1 Samuel 14 verse 6, the Bible says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come. Let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We're so grateful, Lord, that because of the finished work of Christ, we can call you Father. Because Jesus came to this earth, because he died on the cross in our place, because he rose triumphantly from the dead, we can have life. We can have relationship with the God of the universe. And we are so grateful for that. And we know that because of Jesus, your presence in our lives is unfailing. And you are here today. And we ask you to move in our midst. Holy Spirit of God, 
Would you take your word and, and just grip our hearts with it? That we might be radically transformed by your grace and for your glory. Help us to understand what a God-centered life looks like. Establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's been some time since we've been in 1 Samuel. We took a break over Christmas, and we did some vision sermons at the beginning of this month. And so now we're back in 1 Samuel chapter 14. So I want to just kind of catch you up to speed with what's happened in this book very quickly. If you remember, as we began our study of 1 Samuel, we saw that the nation of Israel was living in great spiritual darkness because of their wicked spiritual leadership. So God removed the wicked spiritual leadership and raised up a new leader by the name of Samuel. And here's how it was supposed to work. Samuel would get a message from God and give the message to the people of Israel, and they would obey the message. That's how it was designed to work. And it worked well for a while, but then the people began to say, you know what, we don't want to be a theocracy anymore, where God just has a spokesman to tell us what to do. We want a king. We want to have a monarchy like all the other nations around us. And so God knew it was not best for them, but God gave them what they wanted. He gave them a king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel gathers all the people together and says, Listen, your desire for a king was wicked. It was wrong. You should not have cast off God's authority over your nation. But I've got something to say to you. If you will obey God from here on out, if you'll listen to his voice, if you'll do what he says, things will go well with you. Even though you've chosen a king, things will go well. But... If you do not heed God's words, if you cast off his authority, then you will be swept away. Now Saul, who was named by God as the first king of Israel, did not heed the message of chapter 12. Because the next three chapters we see foolish decisions on Saul's part. Foolish sins. For example, in chapter 13, we studied that in November. In chapter 13, we see Saul exhibiting uh, the sin of self-dependence. He didn't wait upon Samuel to offer the, uh, the offering to the Lord. He took matters in his own hands and took on the role of a priest. Here in chapter 14, we're going to see him make a foolish vow and exhibit the sin of self-importance. And then next week in chapter 15, we'll see Saul display the sin of self-indulgence, direct disobedience to God. But here in chapter 14, we see this sin of self-importance. Uh, in Saul's life. And we want to see it. And we want to look at all of its ugly aspects so we can avoid it in our own lives. Now to understand uh, this chapter, we need to understand the desperate situation that Israel was in. They were squared off uh, to fight the Philistines. And the numbers did not look good. For example, the nation of Israel had 600 men in their army. Look what it says there in chapter 14, verse 1. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. So Saul had 600 men in his army at his disposal. How many did the Philistines have? When you look over in chapter 13, we see the Philistines had over 30,000 men. That's not a fair fight, is it? So they were in a desperate situation. And not only did they not have enough soldiers, they had inadequate weapons for battle. If you look at the end of chapter 3, verses 19 through 22, you see that 
the Philistines oppressed the Israelites to such a degree, they did not allow them to have a blacksmith. They couldn't make their own weapons. So the Philistines had weapons. The Israelites did not have adequate weapons for battle. So they had a smaller army, and they did not have the, the armory they needed to fight the Philistines. Also, Saul was getting no guidance from God. When Saul took matters into his own hands in chapter 13, Samuel said, I'm out of here. Samuel left and did not give him instruction from God. He left Saul to, 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 to do life on his own, to do kingship on his own. He had no instruction from God. As a matter of fact, there in verse 3, it says that he was with Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the son of the Lord at Shiloh, who was wearing an ephod. The people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So he's with the with the family of Eli. He's with the great-grandson of Eli. And remember, the Lord said to Eli, because of your wickedness and your son's wickedness, I'm going to remove the priesthood from your family and give it to another family. So he's trying to, Saul's trying to get instruction from an illegitimate priestly family. And no message is coming from the Lord. There's just silence from God. This is a desperate situation. He's outnumbered, uh, improperly equipped, and he has no guidance from God as to how he is to proceed. And then we see Jonathan. We see Jonathan step out and take the initiative to attack the Philistines. Now what happens here in chapter 14 is important because chapter 14 is intended to be a contrast. The middle part of the chapter, things change dramatically to really make the contrast stark. And the contrast is between Jonathan... Saul's son, and King Saul. Jonathan exhibits a God-centered life. Saul exhibits a self-centered life. And the difference is striking. So what I want to do is I want to examine both of those types of lives. I want to examine and see what a God-centered life looks like, and I want to see what a a self-centered life looks like. And it helps us to see the difference. First of all, let's Examine a God-centered life. There in your notes, a God-centered life examined. I want you to see several things about Jonathan's God-centeredness. First of all, Jonathan was motivated by zeal for the glory of God. So the Israelites have their camp. The the Philistines have their camp. They're just squared off facing one another. Saul's under the pomegranate tree, unsure of what to do. And so Jonathan, unbeknownst to his father, says to his armor bearer, Let's go attack them. He takes the initiative. Why does he do that? Look what it says there in verse 6. Jonathan said to his young, young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. He calls the Philistines here uncircumcised. Uh, these uncircumcised, that phrase, has religious connotations. It highlights the fact that they were outside the covenant with Yahweh. They were not worshipers of the one true God. And they were threatening God's people. And Jonathan thought that was wrong. Here are these ungodly folks, these idol worshipers that do not give glory to the one true God, and they're threatening God's people. That's not right. And so motivated by his zeal for the glory of God, Jonathan says, come on, let's go fight. He was passionate to see God's name glorified. Now, the same mindset was exhibited later on in 1 Samuel chapter 17 by David. We'll get to David and Goliath in a few weeks, but you remember when David was bringing supplies to his brothers who were on the front lines of the war with the Philistines, and he walks up, and Goliath, the Philistine giant, standing out in the field, and he's taunting the nation of Israel. 
You remember what David said about Goliath uh, in verse 26? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Here's this ungodly, wicked man defying God's people. And, And David said, that's not right. And Jonathan has the same spirit in him. That's not right. We're being threatened by the uncircumcised Philistines. That's not right. And motivated by, by desire, a desire to give glory to God, he says, let's go fight. He took the initiative, brave initiative. Not only was Jonathan motivated by zeal for the glory of God, Jonathan was strengthened by great faith. He was strengthened by great faith. Look what it says in verse 6. Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Now, I want to say some things about great faith, because this is a very important verse. First of all, great faith knows that God is able. Great faith knows that God is able. Look what he says. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. In other words, if God wants to do something, it's flat going to happen. No one can restrain him. No one can stay his hand. Whatever he wants to do, it's going to get done. He's speaking here of the omnipotent ability of God. God is able. We're going to go fight, and we know that God is able to give us a great victory over the Philistines. He has strong faith. You see it? Strong faith in God's ability. That's great faith, but I want you to see another aspect of great faith. Great faith doesn't place demands upon God. Great faith understands God's ability, but great faith does not place demands upon God. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, uh, of these uncircumcised. Watch this. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Perhaps. In other words, he said, I don't know for sure if he's going to come to our aid and give us a victory. Perhaps he will. We want to move forward for the glory of God. We want to do something great for God. We know that God's able, but we don't know if this is his plan. This is his will. Perhaps God will work for us. This same mindset is shown by the Hebrew boys. Uh, Their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image he set up for worship, they would not uh, dishonor the one true God. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar brings these three boys in and says, if you won't bow down to this image, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. So you need to think about this and make up your mind whether you really want to go through with your decision. They said, we don't need to think about it. We, 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 we know what we're going to do. We know that the Lord is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But then they say, but O king, even if he does not, let it be known. We're going to stay true to the one true God. Did they believe God could deliver them from the fiery furnace? Yes, and God did that. But they also did not presume to know the mind of Almighty God. Even if he doesn't, we think he can, we think he will. Even if he doesn't, we're going to stay true and just trust God. And so Jonathan says, God's not restrained from saving by many or by few. None can say his hand, perhaps he will save us. Come on, armor bearer, let's go fight. (laughs) Brave stuff. Now, I like what Dale Ralph Davis writes about this passage. He writes, how refreshing to hear Jonathan's perhaps. Many in our day think otherwise. They think that that to say perhaps cuts the nerve of faith, that if faith is faith, it must always be certain, dogmatic, and absolutely positive. Faith, however, 
must not be confused with arrogance. Jonathan's perhaps is part of his faith. He both confesses the power of Yahweh and retains the freedom of Yahweh. Faith, listen, does not dictate to God as if the Lord of hosts is its errand boy. Faith recognizes its degree of ignorance and knows it has not read a transcript of the divine decrees for most situations. All this, however, does not cancel but enhances its excitement. Who knows what this omnipotent God may be delighted to do against these uncircumcised Philistines. You see, strong faith says God is able. God is all-powerful. But strong faith also says God is all-wise and he knows what's best. That's strong faith. So when you encounter a situation, maybe you have a a loved one that's ill. You say, I know God's going to heal my loved one. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't know that. Can God heal your loved one? Absolutely. Instantaneous, supernaturally, God can heal you. I want to encourage you. When you have a a loved one that's sick, pray for their healing. We see that in the Bible, don't we? Pray for them to be healed. There's nothing wrong with that. But also understand, you don't see the big picture. You don't have the entire perspective that the God of the universe has. And he may choose to leave them in their sickness or their illness for a greater purpose that you can't in that time understand. That That is not a weak faith. That's a strong faith. God, you are able. We're going to ask you to do great things, but you're not our errand boy, God. You know what's best. And we're going to place it in your sovereign hands. We're going to ask you to do great things, but we trust you with the outcome. That is strong faith. And that's what Jonathan exhibited here. Strong faith. So what does a God-centered life look like? It has zeal for the glory of God, motivated by that zeal. It is strengthened by, by great faith in a great God. But here's the third thing. Jonathan was victorious because of God's help. He was victorious because of God's help. Look what happens in verse 7. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. They say to us, Wait until we come to you. Then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. Now that's, that's ancient trash talk. What they're saying is, Come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. All right? That's what they're saying. And you know what they were doing? They were giving Jonathan assurance that they should go fight. Because Jonathan said, we'll, 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 we'll put God to the test on this one. And we'll say to God, if you move on their hearts to say, come up, then we'll know that you've given them into our hands. If you look there in your notes, God gave Jonathan assurance he was doing the right thing. They knew they needed to press forward with the attack. Secondly, God supernaturally came to Jonathan's aid. Look in verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. Now that's, that's, uh, that's Rambo-type stuff, because you notice they had, to, they had to scale the cliff, and then look what happens in verse 14. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow and an acre of land. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, who's fighting as well, they're kind of partners fighting together, they climb up this, this, this cliff, they go to the top and, and kill 20 Philistines in about a half acre's uh, size of land. That's pretty awesome. These guys were brave, 
These guys were courageous. These guys were skilled fighters, but they did not win because of their skill. Look at the next verse. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. Jonathan could climb a, 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 a cliff. Jonathan could swing a sword. Jonathan could not make the earthquake. Only God can do that. So as Jonathan and his armor bearer are taking the initiative, taking the fight to the ungodly Philistines, God shows up to help them. God begins to, to make them tremble and make the earth tremble and throw them into a great confusion. God supernaturally came to Jonathan's aid. And listen, God saved Israel from certain destruction. Look in the next verse. Verse 16. Now Saul's watchmen and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they were here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. The ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priests, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. In other words, we don't have time for you to seek God's will in this. We've got to go fight. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, the traitors, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So look in verse 23. So the Lord delivered Israel on that day. Who, who gave Israel deliverance? Jonathan? No. He was the instrument God used to get the ball rolling. But the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Bethaven. God saved Israel from certain destruction. 600 versus 36,000. And God gave them a victory. God helped Jonathan. And when you see someone that's God-centered, you'll see someone that's being helped by God. If you see something good coming out of someone's life, you know it's there by God's grace. God is helping them, and they are desperate for God's help. It's like the old saying, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know it had some help getting there. Right? If you look at my life and you ever see anything good, you need to understand I had some help getting there. If I look in your life and I see something good, it's God's grace that helped you to get there. And God-centered folks understand how much they need God's help. And God-centered folks welcome God's help. And God-centered folks are desperate for God's help. They know they cannot do life. They cannot do anything apart from His grace. We see here in Jonathan's life. So let me give you just a closing thought about a God-centered life. A, a God-centered life will propel you to attempt great things for a great God. When life is not all about you, when life is all about Him, there will be an inner compulsion to want to do something to glorify Him. If life's about you, life will become about self-preservation. It will become about manipulating your circumstances. But when life's about Him, you will be propelled, you'll be energized, you'll be motivated to do something great for Him because it's all about Him. William Carey is often referred to as the father of the modern missionary movement. He was a shoe cobbler in England in the late 1700s. And as God began to move on his heart about the lost in the world and 
God's commission that we go and take the gospel to them. He began to teach and preach to this end. And he preached a famous sermon called the Deathless Sermon on a passage in Isaiah. And this sermon had two points. I love these two points. Point number one was this. Expect great things from God. Point number two was this. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God because He's able, right? And attempt great things for God. Jonathan attempted something great for God. He had a zeal for His glory. And he did not want the Philistines, the uncircumcised Philistines, to bring dishonor upon God's people. He stepped out in faith and in courage for the glory of God. So you and I need to grow in our expectation of God's power, God's might. And you and I need to grow in our desire to attempt great things for Him with a strong, abiding faith. That's, a, that's what a God-centered life looks like. There's a contrast here. The contrast is that of a self-centered life. I want to examine a self-centered life because there's a clear turning point in this text. Look at verse 23. So the Lord delivered Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel. But look at the next verse. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. What happened? The Lord delivers them, but the very next verses, they were hard-pressed. They, they had tough going. What, what, what happened? Why are the men hard-pressed? Well, look what happens in the rest of that verse. For Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. The turning point in this story is when Saul makes a foolish vow driven by his selfish honor. We see him make a terrible decision that was informed by self-interest. And notice what he says. No one is to eat anything until I have been avenged of my enemies. All of a sudden it becomes all about Saul, doesn't it? Now, this was unwise as a leader. I mean, if you're going to finish the battle, your men need strength, right? But he says, no, nobody eat anything until I have my vengeance. Instead of glorifying God with a great victory of the Philistines, the battle became all about Saul and his self-honor. And he makes this foolish vow. Now, there have been some clues as to Saul's growing sense of self-importance in 1 Samuel. As a matter of fact, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Look in verse 2. This is the beginning of their conflict with the Philistines. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan, here goes Jonathan again, all right? Jonathan, he's a brave dude. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So Saul's about to announce some news to the rest of the nation. And look what the news is. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines. Who led the battle? 
Jonathan. Who does Saul give credit to? Himself. And we start to see his self-importance bubbling up in his life, beginning to control his heart and control his actions. A little later on in chapter 13, he thought he was so important he could take the offering into his own hands and not wait for a priest. He was judged by God for that foolish decision. We see clues to Saul's growing sense of self-importance in this book. And listen, later on in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see Saul's self-importance on display as he grows insanely jealous of David's popularity. He was driven mad by jealousy because it was all about him. It was all about him. And so Saul is a a striking picture of self-importance, of self-centeredness. Now here's what I want you to understand. Saul's self-importance adversely affected others. I want you to hear me carefully. When it's all about you, you're going to hurt more people than just you. I want to say it again. When it's all about you, you're going to hurt more people than just you. Your self-centeredness will adversely affect other people. Now I want you to show you all the folks that Saul's self-centeredness affected. First of all, it adversely affected the soldiers. Look in verse 24 of chapter 14. The men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. They abided by his vow. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, and no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Look in verse 28. And one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, if the men had more energy from just eating food, then they would have had a greater victory over the Philistines. But the victory was not complete because of Saul's self-centeredness. No one eat anything until I have my vengeance. Wow. His self-centeredness affected the soldiers. His self-centeredness affected his son. Look in verse 27. Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were brightened. So he didn't know his father had made this foolish vow. He sees some honey. He eats it. It helps him. He gets the energy, instant energy, to go and continue the fight. It was a good thing he ate the honey. But he wasn't aware of the vow. But look what happens near the end of this chapter, verse 36. Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the, the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. In other words, let's finish the battle, Saul's saying. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Silence from God. Saul's on his own here. He wants to be self-dependent. God's going to let him be self-dependent. Look what happens next. Saul said, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. In other words, why is God not speaking? Why is he silent? For as the Lord lives who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. If Jonathan's a problem, Jonathan will die. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. 
and Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. In other words, Saul said, something's gone wrong. Who violated my vow? And they cast lots and determined that it's Jonathan. And he says, says, Jonathan, you ate honey. I made a vow. And Jonathan, I didn't know about it. Guilty as charged. I ate the honey. I must die to fulfill your vow. I must die. I love what happens next. But the people said, verse 45, to Jonathan, or to Saul, Must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. Listen, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan. He did not die. I love that. Hey, you may be the king, but you're not going to touch Jonathan. Jonathan's a great warrior, and they protected him from dying because of Saul's foolish vow. So Saul's self-importance adversely affected his son. It almost led him to kill his own son. But then Saul's self-importance adversely affected the extent of the victory. Look in verse 46. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The battle was not complete. He did not have a total annihilation, total victory because of his vow, because of his foolishness. They did not finish the job. His self-centeredness affected the extent of the victory. So I want you to hear me carefully. Jonathan was living a big life that positively influenced others. When he attacked, what did the rest of Israel do? Let's get in the battle with him. Let's be courageous like he is and led them to a great victory. But Saul lived a small life that adversely affected others. If you live boldly for the glory of God, you will have a powerful, blessed impact on others. If you live a small, self-centered life, your life will adversely affect others. It's just that simple. It'll affect your family, your kids, your spouse. Your self-centeredness will do much damage. Much damage. I read a story from a pastor named Erwin McManus. He's a pastor in Los Angeles. And he tells a story about going to the beach with his family. And his son was probably 9 or 10 years old. And they were walking on the beach. And he noticed a man over on crutches who was having a hard time walking on the beach. He's trying to get somewhere. And he kept falling over. And the pastor said, well, I, you know, we can't really help him. I hear my family. He kind of turned away from this man. And they walked away from the man. His son said, Dad, I've got to go do something. I've got to go help him out. And so the pastor, of course, convicted by this, he said, okay, son, you can go help him. So this little boy goes up to try to help this man who was handicapped on crutches. And he's a little guy, so he's having a hard time helping him get up and, and getting him on his way. But other people on the beach began to notice what this young boy was doing. And before you knew it, there were... Dozens of folks gathered around helping this man up and helping him get to where he needed to go. Well, this little boy comes back to his dad with tears in his eyes. He says, Dad, I did not have the strength I needed to help the man. I couldn't help him out. And his dad said, oh, son, don't you see that your example inspired everybody else to go help that man? It's because of your initiative that this man got to where he needed to go? See? A life that is focused on others inspires others to want to join in, doesn't it? But a life that is selfish and self-important and self-centered does nothing but damage to your loved ones. Nothing but damage. 
And so Saul was self-important. I want you to see this. His self-importance limited his impact for God. His self-importance limited his impact for God. Look in verse 47, the end of this chapter. The Bible says, Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he had fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, kings of Zobah, the Philistines. Whenever he, wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these names, the name of the firstborn, Merab, and the name of this younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner. Saul's uncle, Kish, was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. Now you read that, and it seems like he's talking about a different man, doesn't it? I mean, the first part of this chapter, we see Saul, self-important, self-dependent, wreaking much havoc. But as there's a summary given here of his reign, we see a lot of good things from Paul's reign. He led them to some great military victory. He had a family. When he saw valiant men, he, he brought them into the fold and, and put them on his staff. There seem to be some good qualities of leadership in Saul. Now, how do you reconcile that? Saul, foolish vow, self-importance, and here's Saul, the leader, the king that did some good stuff. Here's what I thought when I read that. I thought... Saul obviously had some gifts from God. And he had an opportunity to be a great godly leader. He was gifted by God, and he had an opportunity to be a great godly He did some things well. But the kingdom was taken from him and given to another because of his selfish decisions. Let me say it like this. How great of a king could Saul have been if he would have been God-centered instead of self-centered? He obviously has some potential, right? He has some leadership skill. He had a great opportunity to lead God's people, the first king of Israel. And some things happened that were good. But how much greater could his kingdom have been for the glory of God if he would have been focused on God and not on self? I believe Saul is a tragic picture of unfulfilled potential. And I don't want that to be true of my life. And I hope you don't want that to be true of your life. You've been gifted by God. You've been given great opportunity to serve God. I hope that we will not be people that live lives of unfulfilled potential. That we will focus upon God and let God use us to the fullness of His plan for our lives. So let me give you some closing thoughts and we're going we're gonna to finish. We see the picture, right? The contrast. Jonathan, God-centered. Saul, self-centered. Very clear, stark contrast. Now, let me give you these thoughts. First of all, we have to choose between the pomegranate tree or the battlefield. Saul was under the pomegranate tree. Jonathan said, let's go fight. Jonathan got on the battlefield for the glory of God. And metaphorically, all of us have to make that same decision. Am I going to sit under the pomegranate tree in my comfort zone doing nothing except worrying about self? Or am I going to step out in faith and courage to try to do something great for the glory of God? You cannot be under the pomegranate tree and on the battlefield simultaneously, can you? 
You got to make a choice. No matter if I have to leave my comfort zone, no matter if I have to go through hardship or difficulty, I'm going to ask God to use my life. I'm going to step out and attempt something great for God and His glory. Secondly, the best way to avoid being self-centered is to fix your eyes upon Jesus. You say, wait, I don't want to be self-centered. I don't want to be like Saul. How can I be God-centered? Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Turn over to Philippians 2. I want to show you just an amazing passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now look what he says. Have this attitude, this, this other's attitude, this God-centered attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to know what God-centeredness looks like? Just spend a few moments surveying the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Where Jesus laid aside the rights and prerogatives of deity and went to the cross for you and for me. And died for our sins. And if we will just keep our focus upon Jesus, if we will follow Jesus, He will lead us to lay aside self. And serve others and reach a lost and dying world for the glory of Almighty God. I'll just be honest with you. If I was that man walking up 1966 for the conference and I was the featured speaker, I would have said, where's my room? Where's my room? But I want to be the kind of guy that will lay down on a rolled up towel. Because I understand it's not all about me. It's all about 